By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So Adam, you and I always talk about skill acquisition. I think our listeners are probably sick of it at this point, right? <laughs> We're not. We're the pop, psycho. We're the pop part of that, as in we take all, all the research and turn it into something that's probably a little less deep as to what Rob's going to go through here. I love if anybody's listened to Rob's podcast, which is really good, but he goes right into the nitty gritty of all the research <laughs> and uses some terms. That I'm all constantly pausing your podcast and thinking, what, what does that word even mean? But it's really good. So today we're joined by someone who I would say knows a thing or two about motor learning and skill acquisition. We have Rob Gray with us, who is you're a professor at Arizona State University. You are the host of the Perception and Action podcast and the author of a great book entitled How We Learn to Move. Rob, thank you for coming on The Sweet Spot. Uh, yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. my, my podcast has been called the Big Words Podcast by a few people, so <laughs> I'll take that. Yes, for sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. I don't get any of the words right half the time. <laughs> I will mess around with something in practice. And then I'll ask Adam, was that differential or very, you know, Adam knows the terms better than me. And then, you know, the terms better than Adam. So we're going to get everything straight today. Yeah. Even in my own coaching, I learned certain things and I found certain things worked and it was only much later that the actual terms came to me, the things like differential practice. Someone came and said, you know what you're doing is called differential practice. And I'm like, oh, I've never even heard of that term know. before. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I find in a lot of different sports, Adam. You know, good coaches, it's not new material all to the time. It's really just a framework to kind of put it on. So before we get into it, Adam's got a million questions for you, I'm sure. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself, the kind of work you do. Introduce yourself to the listeners, Rob. Okay. So, so as you said, I'm a professor at uh, ASU. Uh, I've been doing that for over 25 years now, kind of, you know, studying motor learning and skill acquisition. The main sport that I've worked in is, is baseball here in the Arizona. There's great access to a lot of teams and things, and that's a sport I've done research on. 
But I've also done, you know, a fair amount on golf, basketball, soccer. So I do a lot of consulting now in a lot of different sports. And I've also kind of done other domains, like I used to work with the U.S. Air Force and driving, driving safety and things like that. So general kind of interest in performance and how we get good at things and why we go bad and how we can fix that. Well, great. Some guests we have, I spit out a lot of questions and Adam's doesn't say much. I'm very interested in what you have to say, but I'm going to let Adam start us off here with the questions and I'll pepper some in here or there, hopefully. Yeah, I've got a list. I've got so many different <laughs> questions. Each one could be a podcast in itself easily. So, Rob, talk about movement variability. You know, I've read your book. I was scanning through it again at the start. But, you know, in, I suppose, every sport, the idea is that variability in movement is bad. You know, we all work towards this one model that we think is ideal. And in golf, there are several different models and everybody's shouting from the rooftop saying ours is more ideal than yours. And even from an individual player, there's an idea that we should get rid of our variability in order to become consistent. And some of the research that you've looked at shows that not to be true. So can you talk about those two topics? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, the kind of the traditional idea is, you know, so if you're making a swing and your your knees a little more straight on one swing, a little more bent on the other, and there's different angles. And the traditional idea was that's a bad thing, right? That's what novice golfers do. They're inconsistent. So that's one of the main reasons we use repetition, right? We want to get rid of that by having you repeat the swing over and over under the same conditions, so that goes away. So the, you stop varying in your movement. You start producing the you know ideal, correct knee position for a good golf swing. And that's kind of the traditional view. More and more, we've kind of moved towards the idea that variability is bad, it's noise. More and more, we've started to discover that that's not true at all. People, the, not only are the differences between different golfers, Within the swings made by the same golfer, we see variability. We see you're not all elite golfers are not always using the same elbow angle or knee angle. They're actually varying from swing to swing. And this variability is really functional. It's not noise we want to get rid of. It's something we actually want to encourage, the right types of variability. In particular, we seems like, you know, with each swing, the the word we use, the constraints are changing. The lie, the wind, you know, well, the distance you're trying to hit from the outside and also the inside within you, your fatigue and, you know, muscle stiffness or whatever. So, you know, the way that we seem to compensate for that is by varying our swing. We adjust our swing from each swing to swing and within the swing. So we want to kind of encourage these variations in movement instead of trying to squash it all down by repeating the one perfect swing. So, you know, there's not one ideal golf swing is the one that, you know, a lot of it's hard sell, but that's kind of all the research is pointing to. You know, there's lots of different ways to do it and not even the same golfer does it the same way every time. Right. So yeah, even if the same golfer is standing on the range, making a swing, trying to do the exact same thing, they're going to be moving slightly different each time. And yeah, so if you try to get rid of that, and we often do, I mean, we often do that by placing our focus in different areas, often internally mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, if you ask any golfer, what are you thinking? 99 times out of 100 is an internal thought. They're thinking I'm turning my shoulders this much and they're trying to achieve a specific number. What have you found with things like locus of attention, where you place your thoughts and how that affects variability? 
you know, yeah, that's, you're very right. That's, you know, traditional way we coach is, okay, you're not extending your arm enough or you're, you know, you're not, you need to be steeper on your swing. So you start thinking about your actual mechanics to try to produce that. And yeah, in general, what we find uh, there's, I think there's over 25 years of research kind of Gabby Wolf was the person that started with this. So the that when you focus internally, you don't perform as well, you don't learn as well as when you focus externally, where the ball's going, what the club is doing. When you focus internally, it's like you're, the way I think of it is like a puppeteer. <laughs> when I say, when you say to a golfer you're coaching, you need to keep your elbow in or whatever cue you're giving them, then they start trying to control the swing from the top down, <laughs> like they're a puppeteer pulling all the strings of the movement. And really, it can't work well that way, right? Things are happening way too fast in a golf swing for you to consciously think, now I need to stand my knee now. Now I need to rotate my hip now. There's not enough time. There's too many variables. And when you direct people's attention, you actually see this kind of functional variability go down. You know, they get you know, less adaptable to changes in the conditions. And you get kind of this, this change in variable when you get people really overly focused on their swing by using a kind of internal cueing. The analogy I kind of give lots of golfers for that is imagine you're doing the plate spinning trick. So you've got three different plates and when you're focusing more in the way that you're talking more externally, then it's almost as if you're spinning the plates effortlessly, all three. And then all of a sudden, if you put too much focus on one plate, you know, maybe your left arm or something, you might be able to spin that plate really well, but all the others start to crash around you and the game's over. John, do you have any? I have a thought that just came to my mind, and this is on my list. One thing that we've definitely talked about on this show, and I've always thought, because I came to golf after every other sport I played, so baseball, basketball, football, soccer, and the thing that always interested me in golf, and I think is one of the reasons why we are so internal technique focused, is that it is not a reactionary sport. So when you talk about variability and training, I'm thinking of a baseball player. If you're going to be a good hitter at a higher level, you need to be able to react to a fastball, curveball, splitter. There's variability in what's coming at you and what the pitcher is giving to you. And you have what? Half a second to react and adjust. So naturally, like as a baseball player, it's much harder to think about what your elbow and legs are doing in the movement versus in golf, we have all this time to think about technique because we are walking up to the shot and that's what we're told from the instructional world. Have you seen, I don't know if this is even a good question, but any thoughts on like you deal with a lot of reactionary sports versus golf where we are the ones initiating the action, so to speak? Is it all the same? Your research is saying like, okay, you know, skill acquisition still reigns supreme and variability, whereas could there be something different about golf in that way? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, you know, in my, you know, baseball, for example, pitching is more like golfing, right? You're controlling what's happening. You're not reacting. And to what I would say that, you know, I don't think they're fundamentally any different. No, they're different to a degree, right? Because hitting is more variable. Playing soccer or something's more variable because you're reacting. There's more things going on versus a ball <laughs> sitting on a tee waiting for you to hit it. There's less variability. but So the amount of variability you need in practice, the amount that you see in the movement is a lot less. There's a lot less you have to adapt to in terms of what's happening, but it's still there. <laughs> I think that's the key point we see in pitching and golf. Even though you're controlling everything, you still need to have some variability in the movement. Even you know, from simple timing, like you cannot, even if you 
were to produce the same swing, you cannot exactly precisely control the timing of everything. You need to be able to, on the fly, make adjustments and vary. Okay, my shoulder started rotating a little bit later on this swing. In a good golfer, their elbow will compensate for that, right? So if you measure from swing to swing, the elbow looks very different this time than last time. We're like, oh, that's inconsistency. No, that's correction. <laughs> that's your body correcting on the fly to these small variations or, you know, downhill lie or what uphill lie, whatever, you, what's varying in the environment. But yeah, you're totally right. There's less kind of variability. In, in the other example I give is like if you compare an NFL football running back versus a sprinter, they're both running, but one is running in really variable chaotic conditions. The other one is very controlled, but you still find this kind of importance of variability, even in when more controlled and consistent conditions. There's almost a difference between what you class as good variability and bad variability. So bad variability taking you away from your goal, but we don't realize there's actually good variability that brings us back towards a goal. As you said, lots of people would say compensations. As you said, if you have a change early on in a downswing, your body might be able to change something else to bring things back into line or correct the course. And we always talk about the word compensation as a really bad thing, especially in golf, but it's not always you're saying. And by the way, is, is that a conscious thing or is it more of an unconscious? Yeah, no, it's mostly unconscious, right? It's happening too fast for your thing. Yeah, well, if you think about it, you know, when you think about the traditional way you think about, it, okay, there's this ideal golf swing. We teach you how to do a swing on flat ground on a driving range. Okay, now what do you do on a downhill lie? Okay, well, you know, somehow need to adjust. And you just, okay, well, do this and this. Well, what if it's a 40 degree versus a 30 degree? What if it's a downhill lie in dirt versus grass? Like, to be able to have a perfect swing, you'd have to have 4,000 <laughs> different programs for every possible variant of the shot, right? Versus, you know, what we, you're kind of sensing, the, your body's sensing these differences and changes in conditions and constraints and making adjustments on its own. And the key term, here's a big term that we use, is self-organization. Your body is organizing your movement on its own rather than you telling what each part what to do. If we had to do that, it would just be this impossible problem of not only needing to tell each part all the different ways and different conditions we face, but the timing of it, you know, is just impossible. It's much better to let your body kind of do it. It's on its own. So yeah, compensation the way, the way we, that sometimes- We love, we love that word. Self-organization. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> just like, that, that, yeah. I think that's how you play golf athletically. You mm -hmm. challenge yourself to do something and let your body organize around it. That's being an athlete. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we give it a we goal. use it a little. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, compensation, I know the way they use it and the way it's used in golf kind of has, does have a negative connotation, but I think that's really kind of what's going on, right? We're imperfect creatures and we kind of have to adjust and adapt to different conditions. So how has your thinking changed? You know, we're always trying to give people ideas on how to practice effectively. And we're always talking about variability and experimentation and all these kind of out-of-the-box things in the golf world. And I know you focused on baseball. So let's take the pitcher, for example, which is, I guess, similar to the golfer, the one who is initiating the action. 
how did someone teach a pitcher to throw a curveball or a splitter 30, 40 years ago versus how would you teach them now based on what you know about motor learning and all of that? And then maybe we could translate that to golf a little bit. Yeah, I can, I can actually get, you know talk a little bit about what golf instruction I've done too as well. But yeah, the traditional way is you show up and you meet with an instructor, right? The instructor knows the answers, right? You're there to get the solution. Here's what you have to do to drive a ball, golf ball straight down the fairway. You have to bend this much. You have to rotate, get your elbow, you know, so. And then the instructor gives that to you. They tell you all these things. You try it and you fail. And then they correct you and you try again and again and again. And you repeat until you get it down. That's the traditional view. You know, I'll stick with golf. One of the things I like to do in getting someone to hit a golf ball down the middle of the fairway is I'll start by having them stand up in the ball and I'll say, Try to hit it as right as far as possible, right? Hit it. Imagine there's a lake over there and hit right into it. And usually they look at you like you're crazy, but they hit it like 20 degrees. Then you say, hit it more, right? Hit it more. And then I'll say, okay, now I'll try to hit it far left as possible. Where they hit it way over there. So what I'm not, I'm not trying to tell them what the solution is to driving a golf ball down the middle. I don't know. (laughs) I don't really know what your body has to do to do that. What I'm trying to do is get you to experience, and not in a conscious way, that when I do this, the ball goes that way. When I do this, the ball goes that way. When it goes more. So you're kind of learning, your body's learning how to problem solve and about the possible movement solutions, the relationship between my movement and my outcome. So the kind of the newer way we teach, you know, baseball and golf is the coach is a designer and a guide, right? I'm going to design some practice conditions to let you self-organize and find how to swing because I don't know, (laughs) honestly. And if I did, I couldn't even tell you, you wouldn't work. And then I'm going to guide you. You know, if it's not working, maybe I'll give you a cue or I'll change the conditions and help you kind of push you in the right direction. So that's really how, how it's changed a lot. So we're moving away from trying to instruct and give a particular solution to giving an athlete problems. So in baseball, you know, I have people throw from different distances, different weights of balls to kind of learn about the relationship between their movement and the outcome. That's kind of the approach I take. That's a big part of our philosophy as well. So that would be classed as differential practice. Is that right? Yeah. So the way I would put it, you know, differential learning is when, yeah, you're kind of varying the conditions to get people to explore the different movement space. And you can be really extreme. You know, you could have people stand on one foot and do things, stand with feet together, get them to do things they would never actually do. (laughs) Even like the hitting it way right. You know, you're not trying to get the perfect technique. You're trying to get them to explore the solution space. Yeah. So I would call that differential learning. And I think I mentioned before we went on there, there's actually a recent, that was developed by Wolfgang Schulhorn in Germany. He has actually a golf study where they compare a recent one that just came out where they compared kind of a condition where they traditional golf. Okay, here do uh, 29 irons in a row. Okay, you're not doing you're correcting people versus where they just varied everything and they didn't tell the golfer anything. Right, They put them in sand, grass, different distances, and they just let them swing away and they show kind of clear benefits of the ladder, you know, letting people explore and self-organize. So. Yeah, so that's kind of the way for the, you know, the, I'm going to help you find it instead of I'm going to tell you how to do it. (laughs) It's the big kind of shift. Yeah. 
I've done my own informal research on that. As I said, before I even learned about the terms of differential practice, variability practice, we talk about three key skills in golf. So one of them is being able to get the club to hit the ground in a good place. And there is an optimal place for that. The other is to be able to hit the sweet spot, the center of the club. Mm -hmm. And then the other is to control the face orientation, which is the biggest determinant of direction. And obviously, one of the things that I found a lot is that when I get people to explore those things, they get much better at achieving their desired later on. So one of the things I did was ask a group of golfers just to try and hit the center over and over and over. And then I asked another group of golfers to explore hitting toe and heel, toe and heel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I did get a third set of golfers to do a combination of both. And the, the combination group improved the most in a post-test. But the second one, the second best, was the one who actually tried to hit different parts of the face as opposed to basically the worst one was the one that everybody does, which is let's try and hit the center over and over. Yeah, yeah no, uh, I, I do the similar thing there too. Yeah, I, I think there's also a couple of key points. Like, so you're focusing on the outcome of the movement. I want you to, and it's external, you could care less what actual mechanics are used to get you to hit on the toe, right? Um, well, not care less, but you're not coaching that. Anyway. You're not saying... I want you to try to achieve this certain swing path or elbow angle or knee angle. I want you to achieve hitting it on. So you're focused externally on the outcome and letting the mechanics sort themselves out essentially on their own, the self-organization. So yeah, I love that. I love that approach. Yeah. It's something I, in one of the big shifts I had in my career is the, the idea that you could break a skill, like you'd have someone that was pretty good and you, okay, I, I don't want to mess up their timing or their rhythm by doing getting them to do something weird now i have the exact opposite view take a really good golfer and have them try to shank it right that's good for them <laughs> as much as it sounds like you're going to make them go out on the course and do something terrible it's actually really useful to have them try to do a deliberately bad shot <laughs> right <laughs> they learning about their movement yeah and the same in other sports as well yeah so a lot of golfers I'm sure you, you know this at this point with your exposure to the golf world, have, have been told that technical intervention is the path to greatness. And Adam and myself, we've talked about this a lot on the show, technique and skill. And I don't think either of us are necessarily against technical intervention or thoughts if they're appropriate. So here's the flip side of that question. So we are huge proponents of the practice you're talking about where you know, you're trying to hit it really far left and really far right. In reality, you're building up internal reference points. So when we talk about variability, a golfer shows up with very high variability in their face control every day on the golf course. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's going to be going right and left. Sometimes it's just going right. And we always talk about what can you do to make that adjustment to get back to a functional shot pattern. Some golfers... Would you say that, or even in baseball, like if you're teaching someone the curveball, let's say that designing the constraints and trying to get them self-organized like, is just not moving the needle. Do you still have technical intervention where you say, listen, we looked at video. I know baseball has like crazier tools now to analyze pitching. It's insane. Will you have moments where you say to the coach, okay, we need to talk to this guy about his like elbow position. It's, it's just not functional. Is there any of that going on still? Yeah, no, no, that's a really good point. And I think what you're talking about right out there, also when you learn that kind of, you learn how to be your own coach, right? How to make yes. your own correction, yep. which is really important. Yeah, so definitely this is kind of what I would differentiate the constraints-led approach. 
So sometimes I'll put person in this, these variable conditions, you know, and they're, they're struggling. They can't find a thing that works. And I can tell, you know, there's some technical, it doesn't mean that you can do just anything, right? There's some technical things you need, qualities you need. So I will do that. But instead of trying to say you need to keep your elbows straight or getting the traditional way, I try to do it either with some constraints that I can add. For example, I was just at a thing on the weekend. I was working with a baseball player that when they're hitting, they're kind of rolling over on their, their foot slightly when they're landing. So they had this kind of technical issue that I knew was kind of inhibiting them in this kind of task. So what I what we did is, you know, put a ramp in front of the plate. So when they step on it, they roll over even more and they slide down. So kind of feeding the error. Or I'll do in baseball when a, a pitcher, like there's a some pitchers, they separate their arm from their body really early in the movement. So we'll make them hold a ball against their, their body, a connection ball while they're throwing. So we'll add something to the practice environment that takes away the movement pattern that we don't like and try to get them to do something else rather than telling them explicitly what that we want them to do. The other one you can use, instead of using explicit cue, use, I really like using kind of an analogy, right? You know, I've seen people, you know, if you want a golfer to swing steeper, you know, say, imagine you're casting a fishing line when you're swinging or something like that to get them to kind of change their technique with kind of reference to some other movement or something like that. But again, as much as possible. So I analyze mechanics and use biomechanics to identify, oh yeah, it would really help this person if they bent their knee more. But I don't really ever want to tell them that, right? I want to some way I can design practice to kind of encourage them to find that themselves. Yeah, we've got some golf analogies for that, you know, in terms mm. of a big mistake that many golfers can make is to hit the ground too early. You know, mm -hmm. if you do that, it's basically guaranteed a bad shot. So rather than tell people about, you know, shifting your weight or internal cues like this, we might use a constraint like placing a towel behind the ball. Mm -hmm. And so that blocks off that bad movement. You literally can't, cannot do that then. In terms of, I often use concepts as well, which I think alludes to what you were talking about earlier, which I have a golf ball with a nail through it. And I, instead of talking about arm positions and swing planes and things like that, I might just angle the nail more to the left or to the right and ask that person to hit that nail, hammer mm -hmm. that nail with the club. And that seems to change the motion itself without them thinking about it. I've crudely called that self-organization. You know, the movement is organizing around mm -hmm. a, a concept that they're holding in their head or an, an, an intention. I know self-organization goes much deeper than that as a concept, but I've also used constraints, environmental constraints like mm -hmm. wind or yep. even get a golf club and I have a golf club for myself that is actually too upright. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the lie angle of the club should sit relatively flush and mine is very toe up, which sends the ball more to the left. And I actually struggle with hitting it to the left. So when I use that club that exaggerates that fault, if I practice with that for a little bit, it actually neutralizes my tendency when I go back to my my normal clubs. Yeah. No, I think those are all all good examples of what you know I would put under the constraints led approach umbrella. You're adding something specific. You're not just adding a whole bunch of variability like differential learning, get people to explore. You're adding something to kind of make it so what they're doing now doesn't work anymore. And they have to kind of try something else, right? So yeah, like a barrier. I use barriers a lot. You have you can't swing that way anymore because you're going to hit something. 
you have to go over. And I'm not telling the key thing is right. You're what you're doing. You're not telling them how to avoid the towel or to hit the nail. You're just putting it out there as a thing, the new problem they have to solve. And yeah, you're right. It's self-organizing. The body has to self-organize and find a solution to this new weird nail in the ball game you've created for them. So, which I do all the time or putting people in, hitting people. When I use in baseball, I was having people throw in sand. So when they land, they're a little less stable. They kind of have to get more. So throw it in like a sandbox like you would use with kids. So when they land on their foot, they, if they're unstable, they kind of roll. So they kind of have to learn to adjust on their own without me telling them. Why not use direct instruction then? So why would your first approach be to use more concepts or constraints rather than just tell someone do it this way? What's your reasoning behind that? Yeah, you know, I guess if you, a temporary kind of direct instruction, I don't think is the absolute end of the world. Like, oh, try bending your knees more, right? Something like that. If you're going to kind of use it just generally as a way to kind of push someone to try something different, I've done that. I do that sometimes. But in general, I think, you know, you don't want to get the person thinking about the mechanics, really. And, and it's really easy to draw them into, you know, thinking about that when they do. They get a lot less fluid motion. So a more general thing like that, I'm kind of okay with it. When you try to get really specific about mechanics, not only do I don't really know what you need to do exactly, and two, there's lots of research that people can't really take those on board. You know, I think Franz Bosch likes to say the body has very little interest in what the coach has to say, right? Your body's going to do what it's going to do. It's, you can't really force it to bend this angle or that angle. I'd much rather give you a reason to do that. That's the kind of the other thing. One of the things I find with a lot of these things is you can get people to move in certain ways in practice relatively easily, almost any way you want. Getting it to stick when you're gone and they're out on the weekend playing golf is much more challenging. And so giving them a problem to solve, I think, is much more powerful than just doing it because I'm telling you to do it. You know, giving them a new movement problem to solve. I'm sure <laughs> you've gotten pulled into the block versus random, repetitive versus. So I want to just explore the notion of what golfers traditionally do when they practice, which is hitting to the same target over and over again. And Adam and myself, I call them zombie range sessions. I used to do them all the time as a junior golfer. I'd rifle through 200 balls and think, oh my God, I'm hitting him perfect. And then go out on the course in a high school tournament and play horribly. I'm like, what happened? And in retrospect, I wasn't challenging myself enough. I wasn't engaged enough. I wasn't paying attention to feedback and making adjustments. I wasn't you know, solving the problem well. However, I still believe in what I would call a more productive form of repetitive practice, which is probably what I do now when I show up to the range. Not always, but sometimes. Like let's say I'm hitting 20 drivers in a row or 10 seven irons in a row. I'm going through a routine. I'm picking out a target. I'm hitting the shot. I'm engaged in feedback. The big three we always talk about. How is my ground contact? How is my strike on the face? Where did the ball start? How did it curve through the air? And more importantly, where did it end up relative to my target? I'm internalizing that feedback and I'm saying, okay, what happened there? Do I need to make an adjustment on the next shot? That's the type of focus practice I try and do now. And I will do it in a quote unquote repetitive way where I would hit to the same target over and over again. Whereas other times I'll hit driver, then seven iron, then wedge, change my 
target or sometimes if I'm struggling with the heel strike, I'm just focusing on paying attention to face strike and measuring that. But to my original question, I guess, is can you find value in quote unquote repetitive blocked practice if you're engaged properly? That's a good question. No, I think you kind of address the biggest issue I have with a lot of it, you know, is the why. <laughs> What's the purpose of this practice? What are you trying to achieve? Is it just hitting 50 balls in a row? What does that accomplish in terms of making you a better golfer, right? So it kind of fits into the deliberate practice, right? If I want to get better, I need to work on the things I'm not good at, right? And so I, you kind of have a plan there. So there's kind of two dimensions. Block versus random usually refers to mixing in different skills. Like in golf, it would be driver, chip shots. I don't have a problem really with using blocked practice as much as I have with using constant practice, right? doing the same shot of the same distance on the same lie from the same tee, right? That I don't think is as productive. I would much rather see you add some variability to it and then try and hit the same shot over and over and over again. But you're right. I like kind of the focus on the outcome, you know, focusing on the feedback, giving yourself a particular target. I think that's critical as well. But I really think, you you know, there's always beneficial to adding at least a little bit of variability. If you want to practice nine irons, over and over, and then add some variability to where you hit it, you know, maybe the position in your stance, you know, different kind of surfaces, you know, all these kind of things I think is really beneficial if you can do that. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash SWEETSPOT. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. 
And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So one of the pushbacks with that idea is that people say, well, when, when you're learning something new or you're not good at it yet, then blocked is more beneficial. And then once you're at a good enough level, then switch to random practice. The problem in golf is we're never good at it because Mm -hmm. the success rate in golf, you know, for even the best players in the world is like 50, 60% hitting the fairway. So is there any truth to that? I don't think it's, that's built on the idea that there's a correct swing that you have to learn how to swing before you play golf. There's correct mechanics for a swing. So I'm going to learn how to hit the ball 150 yards straight, and then I'm going to somehow adjust that and adapt it for all the other variations that come on the actual golf course. It's the kind of the idea of the fundamentals, right? I have to build this thing first, and then I can plug it and use it in the game, which I don't really think is, you know, one of the examples I give, like when people say, well, we always learn that way. Did you learn how to run that way? Right. Did you learn how to run and run 10 yards back and forth over and over and again with someone saying, no, plant your foot, lift your knee. Right. No, you learn running in field, running over a thing. You know, you didn't. So that's the way that we do it, because we always think that's the traditional approach. This idea of repetition, the one correct technique that you have to learn how to swing before you play golf. That's always been the way we do it, because that's just our philosophy and our assumptions about motor learning. But it's really, really, you know, I think it's time for a change, you know. One of the other sports I coach in is tennis, right? So the traditional way you coach tennis is you get people to learn the forehand, right? You practice, you lob them a ball and they hit it into empty court and you say, no, you need to get in your arc, you need to get your hand. So you correct the technique over and over. Then you, in some, I went to one practice the other day and it was 47 minutes into an hour before they actually hit against another player, right? They were doing all this. So the idea is you have to build the forehand before you can play tennis. I'd much rather, there's more and more research, and I'd much rather let you start playing and see what comes out. Like when you have to hit a ball and try to place it and beat another person, what comes out? (laughs) What emerges is the word we use. And then let's work on that instead of the idea of you that you have to get the one swing down before you can start playing. So, yeah, so I understand why people have that view because that's the way we're always taught. Like there's one correct way to do it that we have to repeat, which I think now is starting to kind of erode <laughs> this idea through lots of different research and different methods. Yeah. Well, that leads me to another question I had on my notes here is, is playing good practice? So like I was obsessed with basketball for a long time. And because I'm short, I had to become a really good outside shooter. And I would spend a lot of time at the gym shooting those shots. But I found that, you know, that would trick me into this false confidence in the game because what's going to happen in the game? I have a defender rushing at me. I might need to change the angle at which I shoot to avoid that defender. If you're going to drive and do a lob shot, there's all these different little like finesse things you have to do. And to your point, variations in successful shooting in basketball. It's not that same repeatable technique over and over again. And when I got onto golf, I tried to bring some of that over with me. So I often tell people now, I actually, I'm not a range rat during the golf season. I actually don't quote unquote practice that much. I find that playing golf, again, if you're at a 
certain proficiency level is the best kind of practice because, and more importantly, like paying attention to the feedback and, and making adjustments from there. But you said it there when you said, you, why don't you just play tennis and see what happens? Like, what are your views on the playing versus practice balance in sports? Yeah, and you're right that, you know, the game is the best teacher. Sometimes people say it can be, it can yeah. be but I think you're right that. It's not always for when you're first starting out, right? Like you said, you, you know, the challenge level might be too high. You don't always get the best feedback. You don't have time to, you know, so. But what I would rather do than not playing is let's take the game and scale it down, right? Let's keep playing the game, but make it easier, but keep it the game, right? I know I think that's what Tiger's dad famously did, right? He took a par five and made it a par seven for Tiger, right? He didn't have him hit a mid. Well, he probably did too, but, you know, so, so like in soccer, instead of having you dribble around cones to learn to control a ball, let's take 11 people on the field and reduce it to three, like a small-sided game. So there's less going on, less you have to worry about, right? So in tennis, let's, you know, have an opponent that's not hitting the ball to you as hard, right? But you're still playing against them, right? So yeah, I think we can't just play the game because it's not always the best environment for learning, especially when you're first starting out. But I think we want to keep the properties of the game there when we're learning the key properties and, and, you know, intentions, decisions, like you were saying, feedback, things like that. Yeah, the tough part is what to strip away. I mean, a driving mm. range, for example, in golf, it's a, it's a very stripped down environment. You don't have any hazards or anything like that. It's often no pressure. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. But then if you go on the golf course, that can be too overwhelming for someone, especially if you've got people behind them playing and pushing. So yeah, it's that nice balance between what you strip away and what you add. But I think so many golfers listening to this, they get to the point where their environment that they practicing is too stripped down. You know, they go from competitive golf to a driving range where they're beating balls with no consequences. So I've always tried to see what we can layer on in that environment to make it a little bit more realistic or the scientific term would be contextual interference, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I, you know, I work as a consultant with a lot of coaches that use very, very traditional methods in a lot of sports. And that's exactly what I try to do now. What can we do to make this a little more variable? <laughs> what can we do this to make a little more like the game? And then, then start from there and see where it goes. You're right. You can't have everything the same, you know, for practical reasons and, and things like that. But I think there's some key features we want to be there. You had a phrase, I think I might have heard you on another podcast, it was called amplification of error. And we talk a lot about the show on doing the opposite of your fault. I call it my fight fire with fire practice method. If you're hitting a slice, try and hit a hook. If you're hitting it too high, try and de-loft it. So doing the opposite of your fault to move that reference point back into what I call functional territory. But you had a concept called amplification of error where you're almost trying to on purpose do the fault that you have. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if you also find value in that method I discussed doing the opposite? Yeah, first off, yes, definitely. I think, you know, trying to overcome it and do the complete opposite is beneficial as well. Yeah, kind of amplification errors, kind of feeding the error. What we're trying to do there is give the person just more information about how they're moving and feeling the movement. You know, there's lots of different ways that I do this. In baseball and golf, we, done, we know where you use a flexible shaft, bat or putter, 
So any kind of like small hitch in your swing is going to be exaggerated. There's a golf study where they actually looked at people driving and they identified people that were, were they're not, they weren't really shifting their weight at all to their back foot. They were just starting straight up. And, and so what they told them to do was shift the weight as much forward as possible. And that actually helped was the best, right? So I think it just helps you, you start to feel and you get more information about how you're moving when you kind of exaggerate it. But I equally think that what you're describing is good as well too, right? You're getting people to, again, try a different, learn about the solution space, learn what do I have to do to start making the ball go the other way is really beneficial in figuring out not to make it go that way, right? Again, not really in the conscious level. But yeah, you know, the landing in sand I was talking about when with your feet, again, we're amplifying the mistake you're making, the kind of the, the problem you're having so you can learn about it and help change it. For the listeners, in terms of amplification of error, there are ways that we can do it as well. So there are smaller club heads out there. You, I mean, you could go out and buy an old club from the 50s or 60s. I'm sure you can find it at a car boot sale or very call cheap it on eBay. flea market yeah, yeah. Or, or eBay. And so the sweet spot is much smaller. And when you practice with that, you're getting greater feedback. Any small offline strike on the face, you feel it more in your hand. So it amplifies that feeling. You can also, if you get the chance to practice hitting into wind, so we know that when you hit a golf ball into the wind, any curvature on the golf ball, any side spin on the golf ball is going to magnify the offline nature of the shot. So I know Hogan used to do that. What I talked about earlier with the upright club as well, you could change the lie angle of the club to if you tend to hit it left, actually make it more upright so it goes more left. Or if you tend to hit it right, make it more toe down so it goes more right. And I've done it as well where I had a player who used to launch the ball very low with the driver. So I actually gave them a driver that was even lower lofted mm -hmm. and they couldn't get the ball up at all. And I just <laughs> left them with that for a week and they came back and they'd figured out how to get that one up in the air. And I looked and I saw their track man numbers had all changed without me telling them. And then when I gave them their old driver back, they were now launching that much higher. Or another good one is we talked about how contacting the ground in the right place is a very mm. valuable skill in golf. Well, on a driving range mat, you can actually get away with a lot of error. You can hit two, even three, four inches behind and get away mm. with it. So you often see people yeah. practicing in this environment where they're getting away with it. And then they go on the course, which is more constrained essentially, and they get worse results. So I, I thought, well, if we put people into a fairway bunker, so in that scenario, a fairway bunker, because it's sand, if you hit just half an inch behind, the result is horrible. So it really heightens your focus, your, your attention on it. So for me, I know it's a conscious thing that I'm very aware of where I hit the ground, but having myself in a fairway bunker just places all my attention on that one skill effectively, and it forces it to improve. Yeah. No, you definitely, you get kind of, like I said, you give them more kind of, I call it information for learning. Are you learning about, we do the same in baseball. We use these balls that are basically filled with sand. So if you miss hit them at all, they go, Bloop, and no. you can really feel instead of, you can really feel where you, oh, I hit the top of that ball. Right. Because you find, I'm sure you find that, you know, novice golfers don't know that they hit it on the toe or hit it. Right. So they need to tune into that feedback and kind of making it the requirements more precise and, and exaggerating in those is one good way to do it for sure.
You mentioned this gave me a new idea for question for you. You mentioned uh, hitting with the flexible shaft. So that got me thinking about training aids. That's always a tricky topic for me and Adam as well. As you know, there is a huge market for golf training aids and there always has been. And a lot of them are a little, I'm going to choose my words real carefully here, but they overpromise and generally underdeliver. I like some training aids. We had Tor Tempo on was a really popular episode, which is swinging to a series of beats to match what they believe is the biomechanically sound way to swing a golf club in terms of timing, which is doesn't get you thinking about the swing. I love that training aid. Have you experimented with some? Do you have thoughts on training aids in general from your work? And you mentioned one in baseball. What are your overall thoughts on them? Yeah, it's kind of the same story. <laughs> I, would, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. It's just general, so hard to know. Because most of them are corrective in manner, right? They're something to try to get you in a move in the ideal way rather than, you know, using some to kind of give you a new problem to solve, like some barrier in front of the club. The rhythm cue, I love that. Yeah, I like, you know, getting to feel rhythm. So again, you're not focused on mechanics. You're focused kind of on the overall quality of the movement. I like that too. I use some things like that. But yeah, so I don't mind ones that, you know, create a new problem. Like if someone came out with a new, you know, the balls that I use that are soft, I mentioned someone, those are training aids someone makes. Heavier balls, heavier clubs. Using that, that kind of that thing, if you use it to give add more variability, add as a constraint, then yeah, I have no problem with it. But some of the, most of them are kind of, oh, we're going to correct your slice by keeping doing this, like simple, you know, correction to your movement, which you write, they don't work (laughs) for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I found the ones that promote like a specific move in the golf swing. I've tried them and like, I, you know, I'm a pretty good golfer and it's, yeah. it's like pretty much telling me like you suck like you can't do this move <laughs> like i'm like well hi i'll show you the ball flight one i one in terms of constraints and this is like a follow-up question like you either make it i think some of the problems with a lot of training aids is they make it way too hard or they make it too easy and i'll give you an example of one one of the training aids that helped me the most was something called a dsd compressor it got hot about five or six years ago. Adam doesn't like it. He's making a face right hey, now. I, which I don't we want can't any say. lawsuits against me. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's kind of fallen out of favor. But so it's a curved, so that the idea is that all great ball strikers of all time, if you freeze them at impact, they have a similar position. There's some slight shaft lean, their head's behind the ball a bit. They get into this similar position at impact. So the club has a very curved shaft to promote a more hands forward delivery. And you cannot cheat this thing. If you do not get into this position, you will shank it. You will hit horrible shots. And I used it for a year and it made me a much better iron player, perhaps got me a little too de-lofted, but I've since corrected that a bit. Worked really well for me, but for other golfers, I think it was just too damn hard. You couldn't cheat it. So like that's one that I personally liked. I think it was a good matchup for me at that time in my golf game, but I'm always cautious to recommend it to other people because it's either too hard or it wasn't the right fix for them. Is that something that you look at when you're working with these tools? Like, is it in terms of the constraints, is it too easy or is it too hard? And that, I guess that's hard to answer for each golfer. And I think you made a good important point right there. It's not the right fix for them, right? It's there's no one way to swing, right? So I don't mind that, you know, that kind of a general getting you like adding some sort of weird club or something like that to get you to explore a different 
possible movement pattern, I have no problem with that. You know, the idea that it's going to correct you into this one solution, that's kind of the issue. But yeah, the difficulty level, yes, for sure. I think that's really key when you're doing these kind of constraints, also with the variability, right? With a new golfer, you don't want to add a million different variations, right? It's going to be kind of overwhelming or give them that really precise club and do this, right? You want to kind of have, you know, you got to get the, we know we talk about challenge, the level of challenge, right? What you don't want also is them doing it perfectly every time, right? You don't learn anything when you do stuff perfectly every time. So the rule that a lot of us use is, you know, and it's backed by some research is kind of 70%. Seven out of 10 good strikes with this, that's you know right, kind of the sweet spot. It's enough success to keep you motivated and confident. It's enough failures to kind of you learn, right? If you're doing everything perfectly, then you're performing, not learning. So yeah, that was a long answer to say, yes, it is no, important. I think it, it, yeah. it's, it's an interesting topic because I think some of the, the instructors that I've watched and respected, they use training aids where they feel it appropriate. So their discerning eye can say, okay, I think this is the proper constraint for this golfer and this could get them moving in the right direction. Whereas like, I would never tell everyone to use that DST compressor because for some golfers, it might make them worse. But for others like me, it just, it was the right fix at the right time. The results were measurably better. Or like another one that I personally like is the orange whip i think that's a little bit more universal to golfers because it helps on a few things not a problem solver for everyone but yeah there's a lot of products in the golf industry that are like hyper specific i'm not going to name one but there's (laughs) one where i had to like put my arms together in a certain way and hold this thing and i'm like i literally couldn't do it and i just threw it away immediately the inventor (laughs) had sent it to me i'm like i can't you know that this is irrelevant to me yeah no but that that's a great point about the constraints are purposely designed and it's also a thing we i think we've been hitting on all the coaching has to be individual right yeah you can't coach the hard part is golfers don't have access to that a lot yeah i would never for example tell someone to use that ramp or that connection ball for everybody i just giving it to a certain person that's moving in a way that i kind of want to get them to try something different right so it's very individual and purposeful manipulations of those. So yeah, I think you kind of have to look at them carefully. (laughs) They're definitely not a one size fits all solution. The most extreme one I talk about in my book is the robo golf one where you robot. I've seen seen it at the PGA show multiple times. I think it, I mean, no disrespect to them, but I think it looks like one of the most idiotic inventions (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. So it's getting you to move through the ideal swing path, right? (laughs) By holding a club where a robot's adding forces here and there. It doesn't work at all like because you can't just adopt this path because it made you move through it. So, yeah, that's my extreme example. I would not, you know, you know, some people like it. It has some can be used for some things. But that idea that it's just going to get you to program an ideal swing is not really well supported by research. And I say when a, a training aid kind of forces you to do the right movement or is doing the movement for you. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing as to whether you're actually learning or not, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you're you not letting your body kind of, the self-organization part, it's adding a whole bunch of things for you. Yeah. The problem we were always trying to solve for golfers, 80 to 90% of golfers, they're totally on their own. They have no guidance from a professional. They're flying around YouTube looking at different technical theories. They are changing lanes in a traffic jam, I like to say. Based on everything you know about golf now and your research, like what are some of your 
bread and butter constraints type practice things that you would tell a golfer of any level to add to their practice sessions or are there? That's a good question. You know, I think, you know, I'd start with trying to do some self-analysis. You know, what do I struggle with when I'm playing? You know, am I always slicing? You know, I have a problem with distance, putting, whatever I want to work on. So that's a big when I, I find as a consultant, 90% of what I do is like, why? <laughs> why are you doing that? Have a why for every practice. Don't just go and hit 50 balls because you, you hit 50 balls, right? Have an intention, a goal of what you want to work on. And then, you know, I think the constraints, I like, you know, I use a lot of the same ones Adam mentioned, you No, know, trying to work on direction, contact with the ground, and club face contact. So, you know, adding some things to give you more information about that, adding tasks that are going to give more. So doing the driving in different directions. I've done one where you like spray stuff on the ground so you can actually see where you're hitting the ground when you swing or actually spray on the club too as well. You can have people, you know, try to judge where, say where you hit it after you swung, you know, did you hit in the middle of the? So those are some of the main ones. And then you know, the more specific ones we've been talking about, I think are, you know, depend on what your individual things you want to work on are. But go out and do some variability. Try to hit shots different sides of the fairway. Try different ball in different parts of your stance, further away from the ball, closer to the ball. It's kind of take at least some of the practice do that. Explore different variations is what I would definitely encourage. Yeah. On the variations, I've, I probably incorrectly called one type of variation differential that's where you're trying to do the wrong thing so hit as far right as you can hit as far left as you can hit it off the toe hit it off the heel because those are things that are less optimal things that we don't ideally want to do for optimal performance but i've also done drills where you're trying to do the right thing in air quotes so say for example hit the center hit the sweet spot you're exploring different ways of doing that so maybe set up out of the extreme toe and swing back and find out, try and find out if you can hit the center or set up at the extreme heel and swing back and try and see if you can hit the center or even aim your body intentionally offline and try to get the ball to go back onto your target. Is there any research on that kind of stuff? Is there a name for that? I called it variability training, but is there a specific name for it? I think, yeah, variability of practice, or I think it, most of that fits under differential learning, right? So, you know, within differential learning, there's a lot of different things. We can vary your starting body posture. We can do and vary things in the environment like grass versus sand. We can vary, you know, the type of move we want you to swing steep versus shallow, right? So I think it all fits within that kind of umbrella. We can vary your task goal, hit it on the center versus the toe. So yeah, I think, you know, it falls kind of under both variability of practice. And what I think is differential learning is when I'm trying to really just get you to explore different patterns of movement, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to swing like I want you to in the game, really, <laughs> on the course, really. I'm getting you to explore very different things than you're probably going to do just so you can learn about that. Whereas constraints is more kind of pushing you to certain types of patterns of movement. But yeah, I think it all, it all fits under the, the kind of, the variability is that's the lowest hanging fruit in almost every sport that I work in. We, we practice under so low variability conditions, just adding a bit of that is the benefits you'll get no matter what you believe or there's so many benefits to that. 
for sure. Oh yeah, I can. I mean, yeah. speaking anecdotally about it, it's just when you're practicing hitting right and left intentionally, toe and heel especially. You know, I remember a time in my career, my playing that I would suffer with something, you know, maybe it would be on the toe of the club over and over again, and I just wasn't able to change it at all. And that was because I was practicing blocked all the time. I was trying to hit the center. And then when I started doing these drills of intentionally hitting heel, intentionally hitting toe, whenever a problem emerged in the future, I was able to solve it much quicker. So now if I toe it, I can move it more back, back towards the center so much quicker than before. It's, yeah, just so many benefits to it. Yeah. Well, th this conversation has been very reassuring for us. <laughs> it's just, you know, it is a lot of the, I was so perplexed when I came to golf from other sports and I did fall into the technique stuff, but now I'm someone, I haven't taken a golf lesson in 10 years. I haven't looked at video of my swing pretty much ever playing the best I ever had. It's essentially, I mean, one of my main cues has been the opposite thing. I've been fighting a hook and getting it to a straight ball flight by hitting trying to hit a fade the last eight years and that's worked really well for me or or if something's really out of whack like if i'm in there's been a few moments where i'm struggling with you know my tendency is is to be a heel striker and we know what can happen when that gets extreme and then just saying like okay i'm just going to focus on the toe now and, and it just mm -hmm. it, it really has been incredible what it does and it's just i keep thinking of terms like athletic being athletic and, and self-organization always comes up. Like when I give myself the task, or I guess what you would call it, the constraint, I can come to the solution from a non-technical mm -hmm. viewpoint. And that serves me best on the golf course. Like the question that golf is asking me is to step up to the ball, see target and hit it somewhere close to that. And most golfers don't solve that equation by thinking about their swing. Yeah, I've, I've always just like, what can I do to get my trick myself into getting to that reactive mode that I was in basketball where the guy was rushing at me and I had <laughs> a half a second to shoot the ball. I've always been searching for that. And it, it's taken me the better part of 20 years, but I'm, I'm closer to it than ever. Yeah, it's really difficult to... You know, for some reason, we want to try to control everything. Yeah, our brain. yeah we want absolutely. A lot of the methods that have been proposed are really, the benefit is really just getting your brain, your head out of it, right? One of the reasons I think variability and differential learning works is because when you tell a golfer, I want you to hit the on the toe, the, your brain goes, I don't know how to do that. You do it. <laughs> like versus I want you to hit it down the middle. Okay, I know. We were taught this, right? I got to keep my shoulders apart. I got to do this, that, right? That's what, you know, other methods. I don't know if how much you've talked about, like things like errorless learning, where you, you know, start putting by close to the hole and you move out, right? Again, it's to get you away from thinking about, okay, I, that one went a little long, so I need to do this this time. Right. It's so a lot of the practice we have is just getting your head out of it and let your body's an amazing machine that can sort out all the details if you let it. But we get in there and, you know, we talked about pressure, too. That's really what we think is happening in a lot of the choking under pressure. And when things get really important and you can win, you start, OK, make sure I remember I got to keep my arm straight. Let's make sure. And that's, you know, things fall apart. What are your thoughts on adding pressure to practice situations? I'm a really big fan of it. And it doesn't have to be the same type of pressure that 
you're going to face like a competitive pressure of winning. One of my favorite ones to use, I use in baseball a lot is, is I'll have a group and this, you know, one of the challenges, sometimes you have to practice in group settings and you can't do all this individual. So I'll have a little competition and I'll make, you know, for how many hits or whatever. And I'll say the person with the lowest number has to give a speech in front of everybody else about this topic, right? Or they have to do karaoke. They, most people don't like talking in front of people and like that way. So what I'm trying to do there is get them to start thinking about the consequences of failing, right? We want them to teach them to resist that pressure to taking control because I'm worried about failing. So it doesn't really have to be, you know, the same type of pressure. You just kind of want them to get them used to that. And I think also, John, you were talking about you need a routine about how you're going to handle the get practice all the parts of golfing, not just what you're doing right when you're over the club. If you have to walk a long way or wait five minutes before the first tee, start practicing. What am I going to do then? What am I going to think about? <laughs> what am I going to focus on? Don't just show up at the competition and you don't, your mind's running wild because you've not really thought about, you know, one of the things we did in soccer a few years ago is we got people to practice Instead of practicing penalty kicks like you normally do with you're up at the ball, you had to do the walk up from the center field just like you do in the World Cup, right? Because I want you to practice. What are you going to be thinking about during that time? You know, you, so I think routines are also really important for that too. And that was kind of what I was thinking about when I said like, is there a productive form of repetitive practice? Because that is an element. If I'm hitting the same shot over and over again, I am standing behind the ball, picking my target, going through my physical rehearsal, my alignment, getting over the ball, my waggles, trying to get into, that's my, I call it my mental cocoon that I mm -hmm. have on the golf course, the pre-shot routine and bring that in. And I don't do it every single time in practice. I'm not that disciplined, but I do it enough where it's, as you said, it's part of what happens on the golf course. And I'm trying to bring that into practice too. And a lot of golfers, when you watch them at the range and the range gets you into this, you know, flat lie, artificial turf, it tricks you into just rifling after ball, after ball, after ball. And again, you're not going through any routine. There's no target. There's no analysis. There's no looking at your feedback. I guess that's what Adam and I are always trying to get golfers out of, because again, you're not challenging yourself you're not learning anything new and you get on the course and you're like what the hell happened <laughs> yeah i hit all those shots great and then that's the number one question we get is i hit it great on the range <laughs> which is shows them they are capable of doing it their body knows how to do it but they get on the course and it's an absolute disaster and that is so frustrating for every level of golfer and one of the ways is they're not practicing the way they would play at all yeah for sure then yeah no and i think you went the way you described that you know you, in your the blocked practice you described the way you describe you're not actually the mechanics of the shot is the least part you're interested in you're not trying to repeat the mechanics of a drive it's what's happening before and after you're kind of yeah I, i'm trying to challenge myself yeah. i'm hitting the target and i'm going through what i would do on the golf course and then saying well, what happened yeah internalizing that and then going back and do it again yeah i i found value in that yeah i think you know the intention having it you know what's my yes. intention with this shot thinking about, you know, all the other choosing the right club and for me and not over, I know I, I've started actually golfing my father with my father-in-law after like 10 years of not doing it. And I'm as frustrated as anyone. So knowing this stuff really doesn't help you, but you know, some of the same things I get, you know, I picked too big of a club and try to overhit it. And in you know, all these kind of things, I don't 
have that strategy, that practice of those kind of parts of the game down. Yeah. A lot of this is, it comes down to what, what's the skill you're trying to improve? And lots of people are trying to improve the movement part of it when they find out that it's actually the decision-making process. So something as simple mm-hmm. as putting, for example, you know, often people will get there and they'll line up a straight putt and hit a hundred putts in a row. You know, it's effectively just practicing a movement. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the least optimal way to do that as well. But in reality, when they get on the course, you find they're missing shots because they're under-reading or over reading break or they're making the wrong speed control for a given shot and that's more of a decision making process like you're using the predictive models in your brain I suppose to determine what's this outcome going to be how hard do I need to hit this and that's probably better learned with more random scenarios right where you're forcing yourself to make that prediction beforehand yeah I think adapting to the changes where you really see the skill I used to do golf putting experiments in the lab and most of them were putting from the same distance over and over. And you see kind of these small differences between people of different skill level. And once you start varying distance from putt to putt, that's when the real skill comes out, right? You can't just hit this, do the exact same movement. You have to adjust the movement for different distances and lies. So yeah, that's a good point. One of the big topics, focus of attention, I know you talked about, and I find this as well, when we do differential practice drills, things like that, you said it gets you out of your body more into the environment. So yeah, when I get people to practice, say, hitting the ground too far in front and too far behind or hitting toe and heel, after doing those drills, you know, people often report that you know, I wasn't thinking about my movement when doing that. I was really just engaged in the task, you know, what I was trying to achieve instead. And it, it goes into, I know focus of attention is, is a big topic. And it seems like when we think more externally, things transfer better to the environment as well. You know, focusing Say, for example, you're standing on the range and you're thinking about body turn and shoulder turn and arm positions. You're very internal. You're very, you're, you're mm. in your own little bubble. And then all of a sudden you get on the course and there's all this extra information. There's now a target. There's a flag. And that's, it pulls your attention externally. There might be people around you giving you pressure. And then transference goes out the window because your brain didn't really encode the movement or encode those bits with the movement. It's almost like I, I tell people, it's like Pavlov's dogs. You know, you've been ringing the bell or ringing one bell, but when you get on the course, there's a completely different noise coming at you. It's like a siren. You know, it's still noisy, mm-hmm. but it's, it's different and you're going to respond differently. So there's probably a million different avenues you could talk about with that. But what's your understanding of focus of attention and how things transfer to the course? And I mean, even just talk about focus of attention generally. Yeah, I know they kind of, to your one point there, the kind of the other theory of what happens under pressure is kind of you get distracted. So if you are kind of controlling everything, now your your attention's pulled away from what your elbow is supposed to be doing and, and things like that. So even if you are doing that, it doesn't really hold up well under pressure. Yeah, I think the external, you know, there's lots of good benefits. I think, you know, it just allows your body to self-organize. You know, there's research showing if I focus my attention on, even when I'm doing a bicep curl, there's more like muscle activity in my bicep when I'm focusing on it versus when I'm focused on the dumbbell. So I'm like controlling things, over controlling things. So I think as much as possible, you get people focused on the goal. It allows you to better pick up feedback, right? When I get you to focus on hitting on the, 
toe of the club, suddenly now you've got your attention. I really need to be paying attention to impact, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of paying attention to what my shoulders are doing or so that gets them, they're better tuned into that feedback about club point contact, even when you don't have any kind of aids and, and things like that. So I think it allows for better pickup of feedback, allows your body to better self-organize. It allows you to pick up information from the environment better because you're not so focused on yourself. So yeah, there's just, and it's one of the few, I kind of joke, there's, in research, we kind of waffle about things. We never want to say definitively, we don't call things laws or rules, right? But focus of attention is one of the ones that, it's pretty solid body of research now that shows the benefits of kind of moving people away from thinking about their body. What about something totally unrelated? So I've been, you know, Adam would, would call them neutral thoughts. I've been, as I get deeper and deeper into competition and having to deal with more pressure, I've found a tremendous amount of comfort going into songs in my head. Mm -hmm. And Carl Morris was on our podcast, had a great term for what I would call a walking meditation where I'm not even thinking about my golf swing at all. I'm like hypnotizing myself, whatever you call it, the zone where, you know, if I'm standing over the ball in a moment of pressure, like especially with my putter, there's a song in my head. I'm trying so hard not to think about the physical movement that I'm not even thinking about the task anymore. My mind's in this like other space. Anything on that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. We, you know, we've done a bunch of research where we've had people like listen to distracting things from the crowd or, or music. And we found there is a benefit over that, even of that over you know, directing your attention to actual movement. So I think everybody's had the experience too. I've had it, you know, you were, you're shooting hoops or something and you hit 10 in a row because you've been thinking about what you're shopping or what you're going to do. Then you realize, oh, I've hit 10 in a row. Then you miss. Yeah, then you, <laughs> exactly. you start, you start thinking about it. I'm sure that's what happened to people on the range too, right? There's no big consequences. No one. So they just start flying away and then their thoughts are out and they do well. And then they get on the course and yeah. So using some sort of other kind of focused. It doesn't necessarily have to be tax focused. Can be good too as well for sure. You know, especially, you know, golf, there's a lot of time periods. There's not always things about the task you can focus on. Do you remember a baseball pitcher? His name is Russ Ortiz. He pitched for the Giants, the Diamondbacks mm -hmm. for a while, the Braves. Great pitcher. I became friendly with him through a golf tournament and we've stayed in touch. We text a lot about golf and he'll, you know, kind of shoot some questions at me once in a while. And I think he was playing in a big tournament this year and he kind of got like nervous over the ball. And I'm like, I go back to him like, you pitched a shutout in the World Series, initiating contact, similar like you're a pitcher, like you had like everyone was looking at you, you had to start the action. I'm like, where is that? And his answer to me was, it's totally different. He's like, I had the hum of the crowd in the background. And he's like, that was what gave me the most comfort was having that like constant, you know, movement in the background. So a lot of people would be incredibly distracting, but to him was comforting. And he doesn't have that in golf. Yeah. So he gets more distracted by the silence. <laughs> and I thought that was incredibly interesting and kind of funny to hear that he yeah. could not initiate that because the context was so different to him. Yeah, I know for sure that people kind of have to find your, there's also research in like endurance sports, like marathon running, kind of dissociative focus where you're getting yourself away from what you're doing is beneficial at times, but yeah, no. So I, I like that example. Yeah. You got to find, find your hum, you know, your kind of your focus because it really is easy to get it kind of turned back inwards. Our body seems to be compelled to do that. Yeah. Brain. So would you, so yeah. I guess the overall theme is 
do your best to get your mind away from what your body is doing as best you can, because that is incredibly hard to do in golf. Yeah, in it particular. is. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's why, you know, the common way we coach is so dangerous, right? Getting people. I see, I work with a lot of athletes. They're just paralyzed by over cueing. They have so many. One of the things I do sometimes is with tennis, where you have a kid really struggling, I'll get them to hold a racket by the strings. And I'll say, I'm going to hit the ball at you. And I want you to flip it over, grab the handle, then hit it back to me. And they inevitably do way better. I'm like, well, you know why that worked? Because you didn't have time to think about all those thoughts about what your body should be doing. So yeah, <laughs> but it is, it's tough. It's tough. But focusing on the outcomes, getting really variable where you can't, your body, like I said, I think that's why differential learning works a lot. You know, when I stand on one foot, your body has no clue what to do with this situation, right? So it can't really get in there and, and do things. So yeah, there's lots of, so adding variability so you can't think through every possible adjustment you're making, and, you know, and maybe there's some external thing you can focus on in the environment as well can be beneficial. Golf is one of the worst things for this over-cueing paralysis by mm -hmm. analysis because it's mm -hmm. self-starting as well. We we are the ones who stand over the golf ball and we decide mm -hmm. effectively when we want to go. And there's so many players who stand over there for 30 seconds at a time. And mm -hmm. they, you can tell they're going through a checklist of things and then they duff it seven yards in front of them. But, you know, tying all this in together with what John was talking about with the neutral focuses, one of the drills that I learned to do was a counting routine so you stand behind the ball and then you walk into the shot and you start counting out loud I, I often get my people to start counting out loud and then they have to walk in they have to set up they have to look at a target swing back and hit all on a certain number you know mm. and the initial time that I do that the, f the first time I do it it's the goal is not what they think it is, which is to get yeah. them to go at the exact same time. The goal is actually to get them out of their body and to stop thinking so much about their swing. And I'll often video their swing at the same time. And I can show them their swing after. And I say, well, look, here's the swing where you're thinking about everything and paralyzed by the analysis. And here's the swing where you're thinking about the counting and you can't think of the counting and all the mechanical cues. And I show them they're exactly the same, those swings. <laughs> so they're like, well, it starts to get them into the belief of, well, yeah, why am I putting myself through all that mental torture if I can achieve the same swing without thinking about it? Yeah. And the not thinking idea, I know that's been around for a long time too, right? That's what repetition's supposed to give you, right? We get to this wonderful state of automaticity or motor memory, or right, where I can just execute my perfect golf swing without thinking about anything because I practiced it so many times and so many repeats. That's kind of the old, but then the problem is, you know, what happens when I start slicing now? <laughs> well, what do I do? It's all locked away in this box. You know, automaticity, I can't, don't know what to do or, and it doesn't really seem, you know, what if I do and I have a different conditions? You know, how do I adjust? So yeah, I think, you know, that it is, and I do like that example of counting, yeah, I mean, you know, that's getting people stop thinking, yeah. Yeah, that's an important one. I know you said an important couple of words. You said at times earlier. So this idea of being consistent is good at certain times, but it can be bad at other times as well. So, you know, we're always dealing with an internal environment that's changing. Every day I wake up and I go to the range, I don't know what patterns are going to occur on the day. And I found that when players do that counting routine, they become very consistent 
you know, I even have data on things like club delivery and we can see standard deviations. And when they're doing a counting routine, those tend to tighten up a lot. However, they might not always get more consistent in a good way. You know, someone might shank it more consistently or slice it more consistently. And so I've always thought that, you know, we need that time occasionally to go into that cocoon and become zone-like when things are going well. But also if it's, you know, we're coming into novel situations, new lies, there's a tree in our way, or even our body doesn't feel well, we're getting fatigued and new poor patterns are occurring. We need that time to actually be maybe a little bit more conscious and say, what do I have to feel here to change that? So, you know, my approach and instruction has always been to help players build tools to be able to coach themselves on the golf course in a way. You know, there are certain scenarios that come up. Yeah, no, that's, you know, that some of the term you'll hear with this kind of is ecological dynamics or the ecological approach. And the idea there is why the reason we use the word ecology is staying connected with the environment. Like the traditional approach is almost like a, you're a robot. You're like you've learned this repeatable swing. You're just going to press a button and pull it out <laughs> when you need it. You're not really picking up information from the environment about your lie and the adjustments and correct. You know, you're just like pulling it out. You know, we've drilled it into you. That's why we call them practice drills, right? So, yeah. So it's, I think it's a very different kind of way of thinking about. We've kind of want to be disconnected from our environment. I never quite understood why, right? Enjoy being, you know, perceiving the different situations you have and constraints instead of just trying to not think about it and be perfectly automatic all the time. Hopefully this doesn't break things into too different of a direction, but it came up, you know, a lot about motor learning. We've talked inevitably the topic of like blowing up your golf swing or going through a major swing overhaul comes up in golf a lot. You see it at the professional level. Tiger Woods went through two or three major swing overhauls. A lot of the times for beginner golfers who are starting out, you know, they have to go through some intense changes to get into I just see a lot of golfers who need to get into functional positions at impact to satisfy the impact laws that the questions we get asked. Is there any guidance on how long it takes? Now, the way you would go about mm. changing someone's swing is far different than what traditional golf instruction would do. But let's say you, you do have this pupil who says like, okay, this is not working. You know, this is not a functional movement. We need to change this thing big time. And the way you would do it is ask them different questions and, you know, constraint type stuff. But ultimately, they're going to have to change that motor pattern. Is there an amount of time, any guideline that it would take for someone to, because at first that's going to feel awkward, and then hopefully over a period of weeks and months, it becomes more natural. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Mm -hmm. Anything on that, what it takes to go through these major overhauls in athletics? I mean, I know a lot of the times they're not even worth it, but I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I think that it's a good point. I think that it's a tricky because usually the way we're thinking about it is we know what this new pattern is from the start. I'm going to take you from, you know, in, in sports and pitchers, for example, in baseball, there's two kind of distinct styles, tall and fall and low and drive in terms of how you generate power in the ball. So we could try to push you from one to the other. So we know where we're headed in the first place. With that, you know, I would not do that. <laughs> I don't think that's the right approach at all. I think is. You know, if a person needs a new swing, you know, and 
if I want to get big terms, this is called a bifurcation in motor learning where you suddenly switch to a new, totally different pattern of movement. I would want that kind of to emerge on its own, like you were saying, through the changes and constraints. And yeah, another term you hear with a lot with this is called nonlinear, right? Because we can't simply predict these, you don't go through these progressive change, small changes when you're kind of trying to find a new pattern of movement. So that's a long way to say it can take a long time. I think focusing on that, why do I want to change this? What outcome am I trying to correct? And then- yeah, perfect, uh, very, yeah, yeah. very common example, we talk about it in golf all the time, is the classic slicer, that down and across, glancing below. We need to figure out a way for that to be less- down and across, maybe it's a more of a tight fade, or perhaps you're getting them to go in the opposite pattern, which is more of the in to out path. And the why is to tighten the dispersion and make more functional golf shots. Again, the way to get there could be very different, but ultimately like they're going to have to change how they deliver the golf club quite significantly. And we've always said, you know, anecdotally, Adam's teaching me going through stuff like this. I always feel like if it's not happening within two to three months with some like intense practice and like paying it, you know, trying to solve this problem, like then it's almost like maybe you're headed in the wrong direction. Cause I know golfers who are like a year into a swing change and they're like, Oh yeah, it's going to take another six months. And I'm like, I don't know, dude, I think you're on the wrong path. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, I agree there. You should see some progress, you know, I guess, for me, the idea of the swing change, I, like you're, we're starting with the idea of variability. You're constantly changing. There's no swing, <laughs> right? You're constantly changing. So I would rather focus, you know, what can I add in terms of constraints that are going to take away that kind of movement pattern and try to encourage someone to do something else? And, you know, all the things we've talked about, exaggerating the error, making the error in the other direction, using a barrier that doesn't resist a low path things like that, and then then try to encourage them to try something else. But yeah, I I 100% agree. You need some, see some progress in terms of the thing or try something else, try a different route to it. Yeah, I always try to, always try to use differential practice skills, exploration work first. Then if that's not working, I, I switch to constraints. And if that's not working, I can do some internal stuff sometimes, but yeah, I try not to when possible because that stuff transfers the least I've found, but I can still see it as valuable as well. In terms of consistency, because that's like the number one goal, at least in golf, I just want to be more consistent. Is there anything that you've found in your research that can aid consistency or is it just too multifaceted? So to me, you know, I think we were talking about like good and bad variability, you know, to me there, you know, there's some things we want to let vary, but there's certain key elements that need to be there, right? And a lot of them we've been talking about where the club strikes the grass, where the ball hits the club, you know, and we need to transfer a force effectively, right? So there are some things that I work on making those consistent, right? So a baseball pitcher, I focus, you know, on releasing the same point in space, having a consistent release point. So I try to identify these parts of the movement that are really critical, like like you've already been doing in golf, and let's focus on consistently producing those outcomes under different variations, right? Again, oddly making you consistent by having practice in inconsistency, right? Is the kind of basic logic that I like to follow. Let's try to make you achieve the same outcome. You know, the term people might've heard is repetition without repetition. 
you have to repeat the outcome, but not by repeating the same exact movement. So an example of that in golf, just to clarify for people. So, you know, we talk about the things that are not negotiable at impact and, and face angle always comes up where the face is. So for almost every golfer, that's the one that changes big time. That's where the big push and the big pull comes from. And ultimately, we're trying to create less variability at impact to have that face angle deliver in a tighter standard deviation, dispersion, whatever the term you want to use for it. But the movement to create that consistency, there might actually be more variability in the golfer's physical movement to get there. So they're solving the impact equation more effectively, but their body is doing all these, you know, not the same thing every single time to get there. Is, is that kind of buttoning this all up? Yeah, exactly. To achieve the same outcome, we can't do it by the same movement. For all the reasons we've been talking, different conditions, Adam, you showing up to the course, your little back's a little tight. Yeah, right? things you change every day. You, yeah. you get tired by the 18th hole, you know, you can't. So yeah, you want to repeat the outcome of squaring, you know, perfectly squaring up the ball, but not by repeating the same movement. That's why, you know, the term swing change kind of irks me a bit. Like, you actually want a face, the contact change, right? That's what you want. Yeah, and that's what I mean by it. It's like, I'm I'm thinking in terms of solving the impact equation. I don't care about swing plane or wrist angles. Like that is not, I'm not a swing instructor. That's that's out of my realm. I'm thinking of like, what can you do to solve that equation more effectively each time? Not every time, obviously, but at least make it more functional. And that's what I mean by, you know, if someone's swing path was like 12 degrees out to in, like that brings them in a, spot that is harder to create that impact consistency versus if you move them towards six degrees or four degrees or got them in the opposite direction, then you might have something better to work with. I don't know how they did it physically to get there. I don't necessarily care just as long as they get there. Yeah, exactly. They kind of focusing on these kind of, sometimes people call them non-negotiables, right? You have to do this or you're not going to hit a golf ball far and straight. Exactly. (laughs) And I'm sure that same thing happens like throwing a curveball. You have to create the actual spin on the ball to make it, you know, drive down. (laughs) But you don't have to have your club like this or like this. There's no one movement solution to produce that. In fact, you need, you know, like a golf bag full of swings, right? More than a golf bag to keep hitting the ball down the, you know, so yeah, so that's kind of the approach. You know, this kind of kind of paradoxical idea. You get consistency through practicing under conditions of inconsistency. Well, I think the reason a lot of golfers say the word consistent with their swing, and even me, for example, when I step up to the course, I don't feel like I'm trying to do something that different every time. I'm no. essentially yeah. going and then I'm making these like micro adjustments to compensate for what I'm seeing in the golf ball. But in terms of my, like the big motor pattern, maybe that's the right term. Like it feels mostly the same to me. I almost feel like I'm doing the same thing every time. And then there's just like tiny little adjustments I have to make. Yeah, for sure. And I think we can oversell it a little bit. You know, it's not like you make a golf swing one time and a baseball swing. Another yeah, exactly. Time. Yes. Like uh, we wouldn't call it golf if it didn't have, you know, well, that's a drive. If it didn't have certain qualities that were the same from swing mm-hmm. to swing. So yeah, it is relatively minor things that are changing for sure. Yeah, I've often said that the overall look of the swing is going to remain very similar from swing to swing on camera. But there's lots of micro adjustments or micro changes within that movement. And those are the things that create the difference, especially in golf, between good and bad results. Because we know now with all the launch monitors and 
you know, just from physics, really, we know more about it now that a ball that flies 40 yards right can be caused by as little as maybe the club face was three degrees more open than normal. You know, it's just barely yeah. perceptible visually or, you know, a drop of just an eighth of an inch in height. You know, if you drop your height in the golf swing by an eighth of an inch, that can make you hit two inches behind the ball and create a very bad outcome. And I think lots of golfers, especially when they hit a bad shot, they tend to go, I need to change the big motion. I need to make it look completely different. And, you know, a big thing that I've been promoting is, look, the difference between your good and your bad shots has been minute. How do we control the small stuff through simple locus of attention and uh, variability practice, things like that? Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I think... You know, that's kind of some of these theories of learning the idea that you're hypothesis testing. <laughs> okay, I, I hit that over there because I did this. Now I need to try that. That doesn't really work too, like consciously doing like, like that doesn't work too well. You know, doing kind of outcome things, you know, I'm going to try to slice it because I'm hooking. You know, I think that's kind of a higher level. I mean, you're not focusing on the mechanics again. I'm not okay, I'm going to make sure I stay inside because I'm doing this shot. That doesn't work for very well, that kind of correction. Yeah. Adam, do you have any other big questions for Rob? Rob, I think we're, we often love to have repeat guests on the show and I think you're, <laughs> you're, you're definitely in the circle of trust now. So we'll definitely have <laughs> you to. on again. Yeah. It, uh, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I, I knew this was going to go <laughs> well beforehand, but no, it's been, it's been really fun and I appreciate your time. So we'll definitely have you on again, but we often wrap up at the 90 minute mark. So Adam, do you have any other big questions for, for Rob here or do you want to table them for a separate discussion? I'll save it for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we definitely, I'm sure we'll get some interesting feedback comments. About, yeah. about, people always do have their opinions about, especially golf. Yeah. I've always found it again. I haven't looked much into other sports since, but I just know that golf is, you know, this type of discussion really interests me because it's so different from what golfers are fed on a daily basis and have been fed for a really long time. And I think things are changing a bit and people are figuring some stuff out, but you know, Adam and I've talked about a lot of these topics in different ways and, and we've gotten feedback from listeners from the show who are unlocking a higher level of golf because of this out of the box thinking, or at least it, I guess it shouldn't be out of the box, but it is to what they're used to. So Rob, tell us you have a book out, you have a podcast, everything, tell, tell people how they can find you. Yeah, so you can find basically everything about me is the easiest places to go to perceptionaction.com. That's a website I've set up with. So I have a, yeah, I have a weekly podcast where I talk a lot about skill acquisition in sports. Yeah, as you said, it starts fairly deep in the weeds. So if you're just starting, <laughs> you might want to look back at some earlier, like I have an introduction to differential learning and constraints that approach. If you look back, you might want to start there because I, I review a lot of the research and it's, so it's pretty detailed. I also have on that website, I have some kind of general resources about what's the constraints that approach, what's differential learning. And then my book, yeah, How We Learn to Move is available on Amazon mostly, but there's links on that website as well. John, where can people find your stuff? You can find my book, The Four Foundations of Golf. Surprise, surprise. It's also available on Amazon. <laughs> I discuss some of these concepts in my own way in the practice section, but and you can find me at practical-golf.com. Adam, where can they find you? 
adamyounggolf.com and my book the practice manual the ultimate guide for golfers is also on amazon and <laughs> yeah i, I also yeah, weird you know, what a coincidence <laughs> and i go through all of this stuff so like random practice differential practice variability practice different types of focus of attention constraints led learning contextual interference feedback scaling it i go through all of that stuff in this book so if you were looking for a very golf specific version that will be in that practice manual of mine. Yeah. Now that I know the content and all three, I would say Rob's is very academic, like going to give you the deep level stuff. Adam's is way more intense than mine. And mine's more of the beginner to intermediate speak of these <laughs> concepts that I've, I've stumbled across and learned from Adam and other people. So yeah, that would be a great trio of books to buy. Um, Christmas so, coming up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wrap them all up in the stocking. Tag us in Instagram. <laughs> yes. All right. So as usual, thank you for all of our listeners, their support, their feedback, and we will see you next time with a new episode.